2: Make the same no brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com, Code Program.
3: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dance Knows History. Today, we've got an episode from one of our sibling podcasts. It's Professor Susanna Lipscomb's, so not just the Tudors. So, this is what you've got to remember. She is one of the world's great experts on the Tudors, one of the world's greatest living Tudor historians. She is going to talk to Kate Williams. Kate Williams has written the most recent, the most comprehensive, the most celebrated and acclaimed biography of Mary, Queen of Scots. So these two world-renowned historians are going to discuss Mary, Queen of Scots. There is no other conversation on earth at the moment about Mary, Queen of Scots with more authoritative participants. As you're listening to this conversation, know that you are getting the latest scholarship from the two best communicators. There is no other content on planet Earth about this subject that is better than what you're about to listen to. There you go. That's it. That's what we get you a history hit. If you like not just the Tudors, which covers not just the Tudors, but all sorts of lovely 16th century Renaissance topics, please head over and wherever you get your pods, subscribe, like, share, review, etc., and help it continue its journey rampaging up the charts slowly but surely overtaking the old lumbering giant that is Dan Snow's history here. It happens. It's natural, folks. I'm cool with it. So this is an episode of Mary Queen of Scots. We decided this would be a great episode to share, because it's brilliant and did very well when it went out on the not just the Tudors feed, but also because the tragic news recently, Mary Queen of Scots's rosary beads were stolen from Arundel Castle on the south coast of England. An absolutely tragic, tragic theft. I filmed with those for history TV. And I feel very privileged to have seen them before they disappear off into some criminal underworld. So very, very sad. If you were the thief, if you were the thief, move to seal them, because you love history so much because you listen to this podcast, please slip them in a little envelope and send them back to Arundel Castle. Thank you. If you do wish to watch the documentary I made at Arundel Castle, head over to historyhit.tv. It's all there. Uh, Great history documentaries, more and more coming all the time. And obviously all these back episodes of the podcast without ads. So please check those out, historyhit.tv. But in the meantime, folks, here's two professors. Susanna talking to Kate. Enjoy.
4: Mary Queen of Scots always seems to me to have had the life of a romantic heroine, maybe a tragic romantic heroine all gone wrong given that she becomes queen at such a young age and her story has so many twists and turns. But I guess we should start at the beginning. Let's start with her family. Who were her parents and who was most important to her?
1: Well, Mary, Queen of Scots, if the fairy godmother was giving out gifts, Mary, Queen of Scots, has got every gift... To start out with, particularly royal blood. She has French royal blood from her mother, Mary of Guise. She has Scottish royal blood. She's the daughter of King James V of Scotland. And her paternal grandmother, Margaret Tudor, was Henry VIII's sister. So she's got English royal blood as well. So she starts out with heritage. She starts out with money. She starts out with position. So really, you think about this little girl who's born on the 8th of December, 1542. And it seems like any fairy print But it doesn't work out that way.
4: No, it certainly doesn't. So let's talk about her early years and her education. When Mary's
1: born, it's kind of a catastrophe. Her father, James V, he's on his deathbed, and it is the legend that the arrival of Mary pushes him over the edge, and six days later, he's dead. Now, we know that the birth of a little girl in Tudor times is not really greeted with unalloyed happiness, but I think this is quite an extreme version. The poor king hears he's got a healthy baby, but it's a girl, and he dies. So Mary is pitched into becoming queen at six days old. And what a catastrophe that is, because a baby monarch is so vulnerable. We have to remember that the majority of children died very young. And if you reach the age of five, you are on the home straight. So Mary could have died very young. And also there is the problem of regency. So Mary doesn't have any brothers. The brothers have died. Mary of Guise, Mary's mother, becomes regent, and she's not universally popular because she's French, because she's Catholic, and she cannot get control of the Scottish aristocrats. The Scottish aristocrats really seize this moment for power, and they've wanted a power for a long time, and this moment, they really move in and start to try and gain power. And what Mary has as a particular problem is not just the Scottish aristocrats are trying to seize power, but also England is trying to seize power. The death of James begins to be an invitation to Britain for power. But it's quite interesting, because when James was so devastated that he was having a baby girl, he really thought that would mean that Henry VIII just moved in and invaded. But actually, Henry, rather than invading, what he actually does is start to think about Maybe the idea is marrying little Mary, Queen of Scots, to his son, Edward, the future Edward VI, and this will be a union of Scotland and England. But it's not going to be a marriage of equality. It's going to be a union by which Mary will be living at the English court and Scotland will be subject to England. It'll be a way of bringing Scotland under English rule via marriage. So... Mary of Guise and the six-day-old baby Mary Queen of Scots have big problems on their doorstep. They have the Scottish aristocrats who are fighting for power. And on top of that, they have the problem that female monarchy is not popular. So they're confronting
4: disaster. So after the attempted and so-called rough wooing, where Henry VIII tries to marry the infant Mary Queen of Scots to his son, the future Edward VI, that doesn't work and the decision is made to send the infant Mary to France. Is that to get her away from these pushy Scottish nobles? Yes, that is to get her to safety.
1: And this is really Mary of Guy's hopes will solve her problems. Number one, that it's possible that Henry VIII or his men working on his behalf could kidnap Mary, Queen of Scots, and take her to England to be married to Edward VI. And number two, Henry, who doesn't get Mary, Queen of Scots, as a future daughter-in-law, is threatening to invade. And the Scots aristocrats are also threatening as well. So what Mary of Guise tries to do is she tries to create an alliance with France. And she says, look, please, King of France, help me. And the idea is that if the King of France, his might is behind her, then Henry VIII won't invade and the aristocrats will be calmer. And so this is a good idea. The French king says, "Okay, I'll send the ships. I'll threaten with the army. And it does keep Henry VIII at bay. But the French king isn't going to do that for nothing. He wants something in return. And what he wants in return is the baby Mary, Queen of Scots. So she is sent over, age five, to be the marriage to the Dauphin, the future king of France. And that's really problematic, isn't it? Because Mary isn't a princess. She's a queen. And although her life in France is a safe one, she is always made subject to another country, France and Scotland are already put in this sort of relationship of subjection. And it's a fascinating thing to compare her to Elizabeth. Because of course, Elizabeth has very bad childhood. I mean, her mother is executed. And then when her father dies, life becomes quite difficult for her. And her adolescence, perhaps is one of the worst adolescence you might imagine for any royal child in history, considering that first her brother tries to chop off her head, and then her sister tries to chop off her head. But Elizabeth throughout that remains in England, and that gives her two advantages. Number one, she can create a network of devoted men around her, like Cecil, who knows she's going to come to power one day, and they know that's their moment. So they're going to help her when she's young, in the hope that they will have power when she's older. And number two, she's seen as perpetually... The English Queen. She seems always having been in England, no matter how difficult her life must have been. She's always in England, even if she's an exile from the court. So Mary, who's sent abroad, she doesn't have either of these things. She doesn't get to build a network of powerful men around her. And the person who is going to cause her the most problems is her half-brother. And that is James, the Earl of Murray. He's Mary's half-brother. The king had a mistress and he was the son. A lot of her problems, I'd say, start with going to France. So as I said, she's safe, but what kind of queen future does she have if she's sent to a different country? She's married off to the Dauphin, age 14, she becomes queen. She's quite a successful queen. They're quite a happy queen, but her husband dies. And then at 18, she is a widow. There is a young king. He's the next monarch. Mary isn't needed. So what can she do? Well, the option is for her to come back and resume the throne of Scotland and be queen. Mary of Guise has long died. And James Stewart, who's her half-brother, he says, come back and be queen.
4: And what do you make of her character as far as we can access it?
1: I think Mary is a young girl alone and a young girl without anyone to trust. And there is no one who she can trust. She is sent away from her home. She is sent away with her ladies in waiting, but these are all children and many of them are sent away from her. And many of her Scots attendants, the French court don't want them around because they see them as far too Scottish and they don't like the separate language being spoken. So Mary, I think is someone who is completely vulnerable. And I think she's someone who's always seeking for someone to trust. And that means throughout her life, she puts her faith in people who are very bad and particularly that you could find a man to trust and that is something that Elizabeth very early gives up on. Mary is convinced that she can find a man who can trust and a man who will be able to assist her and look after her and that's just not the case. For everyone else she is queen on the chessboard and all they want to do is capture
4: her. I think her beauty and height is important as well. Extraordinary height for a woman. That's what they say I mean, I think that's kind of mind-boggling because five foot
1: eleven is so tall for nowadays. So it's incredibly tall for then. And certainly it's very significant because later on when she's pushed around and captured, particularly by men, it really shows you that it's about seizing power from her. Because you might think that some men might be slightly intimidated about seizing or capturing a woman who's nearly six foot, but they're not. And she's an incredibly striking figure. She's tall, this oban hair, hazel brown eyes, you know, she's a beautiful woman, but she loses her beauty very quickly after she is under house arrest in her later life. But certainly at this point in France, she's the image of beauty and success. So she's a great coup for the King of France to marry off to his son. And Francis really has got the best part of the bargain here.
4: What impression do you think this time in France has on her?
1: think it's quite a brutal time because although she is very safe the Guise family are always trying to use her to seize power they're always trying together to sign documents to give power to them and when Mary marries the Dauphin the king of France does something that's going to cause her particular problems the king of France starts proclaiming how his son is king of Scotland and he also says that Francis is king of England because this is the argument that Mary is legitimate heir so Mary's Big problem comes from the fact that she is legitimate. And some people argue that Elizabeth is not legitimate. Mary's English blood, which is such a great gift to have at the beginning, is something that causes her big problems because she is so close to the English throne that makes her a real threat. If she'd been just some random Scot-stroke French woman, her position vis-à-vis England, the obsession that Elizabeth's advisor Cecil has with her wouldn't have been so strong if she hadn't got a claim on the English throne. So this is just ideal to annoy Elizabeth and will really add grist to the mill to people like Cecil, who are fearful that Mary wants to seize the English throne as she gets older. So Mary goes back to Scotland. Her half-brother says, Come back and be Queen of Scotland. But what he thinks is that he can put Mary in as a puppet. She can be the puppet queen and he can rule the aristocrats because they do listen to him, James Stewart, but that's not what she wants. She wants to be a real monarch. She wants to rule just as Elizabeth does. And, you know, this is a fascinating question for me. If she'd agreed to be puppet monarch to James Stewart, she probably would have lived for very much longer, but she had this courageous decision
4: to rule for herself. And that's what she died for. We also ought to remember that when she goes to Scotland, she's a Catholic queen, and this is a country that has converted almost completely to Protestantism and quite a radical form of Protestantism, a Calvinism. And so what problems does that bring her as she arrives back on Scottish shores?
1: She is not universally welcomed. She's seen as having all this French influence. Her mother was not popular. Her mother has long died now, but she was not popular because people thought she was bringing too much French influence and religion. So many of the Scottish aristocrats who are the ones who try and seize power from Mary, they are Protestant. And of course, John Knox is always preaching against Mary, saying she's dreadful. She's just one of these awful, awful female monarchs. And many of the monarchs who converted to Protestantism are Sincere. They sincerely believe Protestantism is the way to God. Some of them are not. Some of them wish to retain their lands. They have received huge lands after the desolation of the monasteries. They've got Catholic lands. They've become much enriched by that. And the last thing they want is Catholics to return in power because they might have to give their lands back. So this is one of their great fears. So this means that there's a lot of opposition ranged against Mary. And what's really interesting is. When you think about Mary in terms of queenship, a lot of what she does, Elizabeth does, and Elizabeth's praised for it, but Mary, the same doesn't happen to her because the situations in Scotland and England are so very different. So Mary brings in a Privy Council of both sides, Catholics and Protestants. She listens to Protestants and she brings in Protestants who she doesn't agree with and she doesn't necessarily like, but she brings them in as a case of kind of religious unity for which Elizabeth is so widely praised. And Mary, she fights to be a female monarch. She tries to bring in religious toleration. And these policies were so successful for Elizabeth, they are seen as underpinning her great success. But for Mary, she is in this impossible position. So Mary talks to Protestants, she gives Protestants power. But what we see in Scotland in the early days of Mary's reign, which we don't see in England for Elizabeth, is people are constantly trying to kidnap her. And it makes Mary's job so much more impossible and it might make us ask, you know, if Elizabeth had been Queen of Scotland, could she have succeeded? When men are hostile towards Elizabeth, they leave her out of meetings. They don't tell her what's going on. When they're hostile to Mary, they try and kidnap her and physically try and seize her. And so she is a threat
4: quite early. So she's maybe 18 at this point in time when she arrives back in Scotland?
1: Mary arrives back, aged 18, in Scotland. Now, Mary is a champion shopper. She has come back with boats and boats of wonderful books and jewels and tapestries, all the great stuff that the French shops have to offer and she also does a lot of shopping in Scotland as well and I think she's a single-handed shopping revolution in Edinburgh but she has all this wonderful stuff and she puts it all in her palace Hollywood is full of all this fantastic stuff that she brings back with her so initially it does seem as if it's very successful but really James Stewart is determined to undermine Mary he's determined to get power and he realizes she's not going to be a puppet monarch and so she's constantly under threat and really this means that mary very quickly is pushed into the idea that she has to get married elizabeth fights off every man in quite a brilliant way but mary i think realizes quite early she has to get married and one reason why she feels she has to get married is because she feels a man will protect her and if she's married to someone men aren't going to keep trying to kidnap her to marry her and also possibly to assault her as well so she feels very quickly that she's got to find a husband Mary's choices are not very strong for the second husband. And I've got to say this, that Mary really, I would argue, has the worst husbands in royal history. And it's difficult for her because she feels that she can't marry a Scottish aristocrat because that will be seen as favouring one clan above the other. And Elizabeth has a plan that she wants Mary to marry Robert Dudley. In terms of 16th century choices, I don't know, Susanna, what do you think about Robert Dudley? If you were Mary Queen of Scots, would you think Robert Dudley was your man?
4: I never know what Elizabeth was thinking about this. Robert Dudley, as everybody probably knows, is Elizabeth's great favourite, the one we think maybe she wanted to marry. And here she is hawking him to a woman who is beautiful and also a queen. If I were Mary and thinking, would I like to marry Robert Dudley? I'd think, no, I would have a spy for Elizabeth in my bed. It's funny, isn't it, Susie? Because if this was
1: scottish blind date we've got mary queen of scots on one side of the divide and we've got so the black standing next to her saying who are you going to choose well on the other side she's got a scottish aristocrat whichever one she marries will infuriate the rest of scotland and probably some kind of anger and it will also annoy her half-brother as well and then she's got robert dudley and he's got a lot of downsides really hasn't he because number one he's a commoner and elizabeth makes him earl of leicester that's a fig leaf, isn't it? I don't think Mary is very convinced. Number two, he's the son of a traitor. I mean, his father lost all of his lands for being a traitor. And number three, he's a Protestant. I mean, most men that she would marry are Protestant. And number four, he is suspected of possibly having a hand in the death of his wife now i think he was probably innocent but still it's all a bit suspicious isn't it that he wasn't there and she fell down the stairs and it was all very convenient and then on top of that he is elizabeth's close friend if not possibly ex so you could just think mary think mm, i could have a commoner a traitor and someone who possibly is suspected by all of europe possibly of having a possible hand in the convenient death of his wife and elizabeth's ex you know they're not Although he looks good in a rough, I mean, he's a good looking guy, but I mean, is this enough to counter for it? So Mary actually is rather offended at the suggestion. And as you say, she thinks he's a spy for Elizabeth. And on top of this, Elizabeth's plan is that Mary and Dudley and Elizabeth all live together in the English court. So Mary would be living with her husband, Dudley, in the English court. And we know what would happen, don't we, Susie? I mean, he spent the whole time going off riding with Elizabeth, saying, bye, darling, just have to do some more riding with Elizabeth. See you soon. I'm off with Elizabeth all day
4: long. And he would be Elizabeth's man still. It's got to be one of the strangest things suggested in history that Elizabeth says, let's have a menage a trois. You come live with me and we'll share this man. I mean, it's extraordinary. It's a famous phrase, isn't it? There were three of us in this marriage and it was a bit crowded. There would have definitely been three of people in that marriage, let's put it that way. But she doesn't necessarily make a much better choice. I mean, she decides instead to marry Henry Lord Darnley, good looking, charming, a bit younger, six foot so he can look her in the eyes, but also arrogant and violent and drunk and bisexual and possibly syphilitic by this point. Not a great choice in the end. The Scottish blind date show with Scylla its going to be a sad show, isn't it? A
1: Scottish aristocrat, Robert Dudley, or Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley, who is a weak-minded power grabber. He is a weak-willed man who will be subject to everyone else and will not protect his wife. And really... Mary is prompted into marrying him because she's so angry about Robert Dudley. She's so angry that that's the man that Elizabeth chose for her because she wrote to Elizabeth saying, do you have any ideas who I might marry? You know, trying to be friendly, ask some nice questions. And Elizabeth said, this guy. Mary is very offended and it pitches her into the arms of her half-cousin. He's English-born and he's a problem for Elizabeth because he has a claim on the English throne. So Mary's child with Darnley would have a big claim to Elizabeth's throne as well if she did not have children. So marrying Lord Darnley makes Mary much more dangerous for Elizabeth and particularly as we know for Cecil, because Elizabeth, she goes in and out of what she thinks about Mary. Sometimes she's concerned about her as a threat. Other times she thinks, no, no, she's just a relation of mine. She's just a cousin. She just wants to govern Scotland. But Cecil, as is often the case with advisors, Cecil's the one who is convinced that Mary is out to get Elizabeth and is out to get Elizabeth's throne. So everything that she does, he reads as a hostile act and particularly this act of marrying Lord Darnley here. So Mary just thinks he'll be a good royal husband, and certainly he seems as if he doesn't have any other lady in his sights, unlike Dudley, but it's a marriage that is almost immediately a disaster.
4: Yes, he doesn't have any other lady in his sights, and it's certainly true that they very quickly conceive a son, but he does have someone else in his sights. I remember when Josie Rourke's Mary, Queen of Scots film came out, everyone was utterly shocked by the scene in which Darnley and David Rizzio, Mary's private secretary, were found in bed together. But actually it's true, isn't it, that Darnley was described in a wonderful 16th century expression as a great cock chick, and the evidence suggests that he and Rizzio did have a thing. When you look at the
1: sources, there are various arguments that they say that Darnley is homosexual. They say that Darnley is bisexual. They wouldn't use this word, but they say that Darnley is dating Rizzio. There are all these attacks made on him for many reasons. But essentially, I think the biggest problem of Darnley is that he is so weak and he's very quickly seized over by the Scottish aristocrats who are trying to gain power from Mary. He's very quickly over in their camp. So Mary marries because really she thinks her husband will give her a child, which she wants very much to have and has to have as a monarch. And number two, will protect her against the incursions of these Scottish aristocrats. And yes, Darnley gives her a child. She has a baby boy. I mean, this is just marvellous. Bells ring out across Scotland. But Darnley is a man who demands power and he wants not just to be consort, he wants to be the joint monarch. He wants to be in power. And Mary says no. I mean, this is a wise move because Darnley is so unpopular. If he's made into joint king, he will cause a revolution, and certainly he has a tendency to say to the Scottish aristocrats, You know what? I might bring some Catholicism back because I want your land, and that's guaranteed to annoy them all. So, at the same time as annoying them, he also goes over to them because he decides that the only way he can get the power he wants from his wife is by allying himself with her enemies. And what you have is a situation that Mary is pregnant. And Darnley is sure that Charles is going to be born. So what they're going to do is they're going to take Mary prisoner. And how they do that is via the murder of Rizzio. And to me, the murder of Rizzio is a bit of a red herring. He is a sacrifice, really. And what they want is to kidnap Mary. So Mary's Saturday night in Hollywood Palace. She's having a lovely dinner party with her friends. Rizio is there. He is seized by various lords. Darnley is part of the plot. They stab him, they kill him, and they take Mary prisoner. And the whole point of this plot is to get Mary under her control so that when she gives birth to her baby, they can really depose her and put the baby as monarch, and James Stuart, perhaps with Darnley, will be regent. This is their plot. So Mary's pregnancy is something that is both marvellous for the succession, but it also is the beginning of her end.
3: You're listening to Dan Snow's History. We've got an episode of not just the Tudors on the feed today. Professors Lipscomb and Williams talking to each other about Mary, Queen of Scots. More after this.
2: Have you ever wondered if the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were actually real? Or what made Alexander so great? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week, on the Ancients from History hit
0: wherever you get your podcasts.
2: One size fits
1: all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
0: Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt.
1: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
4: After Rizzio is murdered in Mary's presence, very brutally stabbed 56 times, there is a comeuppance. Now, I don't know whether you think this is... Mary leading the charge or not in terms of a revenge, but certainly there is a price to be paid. There is a price to be paid.
1: As you say, Rizzio stabbed many times. Mary is pregnant. They wave a gun at her. She's terrified. And my favourite bit about that is that Lord Ruthven, who is not a great friend of Mary's, he turns up in his full armour to stab Rizzio. And then after he's done it and they've thrown Rizzio down the stairs, he basically walks into Mary's sitting room where she's sitting there, very pregnant, terrified, and says, I'm so tired after all that exertion. Can I have some wine? And you're just like, what? Like You're tired after killing her friend. <laughs> so Mary is taken prisoner. But luckily, Darnley realises that those lords ain't going to put him on the throne. His best chance is to throw his lot in with Mary. So he helps her escape. And after that, the little boy James is born and we start to see an uneasy peace between Mary and the lords. But the lords now become obsessed with Darnley. So this is a real story of shifting power structures. One moment you're in, one moment you're out. What you see after Mary has given birth is the aristocrats who have been part of this plot to kill Rizzio and take her prisoner. They accept that this isn't going to work. It's because there's a lot of popular affection for Mary among the ordinary people. Now, the ordinary people don't matter. They don't vote. But still, it's important that the people of Edinburgh in particular were saying, we can't imprison Mary. She's our blood queen. We want her on the throne. So they realise that they're going to have to keep her vaguely within the circle of power. And they start to say, we've got to get rid of Darnley. So the Mary and the nobles start meeting up saying, how can we get rid of Darnley? They tell Mary she's got to divorce him. But that's rather difficult. Mary's a strict Catholic. And there's some talk that he's very closely related to her. But frankly, if their relation is counted as close, then every royal marriage in Europe should be dissolved because everyone's married to their cousins. And James Stewart, Mary's half-brother, he keeps saying, look, you've got to get rid of Darnley. And then he says to her, we'll sort it out. I think what Mary thinks when she's told by the aristocrats that they'll sort it out is that they'll tell Darnley to behave and threaten him. But what you have is that... Mary is in Edinburgh and Darnley has syphilis. He's in a house in the city walls, and Mary goes to visit him, and it seems like they're getting on much better. But then his house is blown up, and he's found in the garden strangled. And Mary, she's in absolute panic. She thinks that Darnley's been murdered, that she's next to be murdered, and she has no idea what to do. But it's very clear to her that she thinks that the lords have been involved in this, including her half brother, who interestingly disappears on the very moment that Darnley's about to be killed and look after his wife. And I think that's pretty suspect. So you have this amazing document in the National Archives. It's absolutely incredible. And it's what the English spies drew of the murder scene of Darnley. And they were on the site faster than anyone. And Darnley's house is blown up. But Darnley isn't dead in the blown up house. What they find is Darnley and his valet in the orchard nearby. And it's really quite Cluedo because Darnley and his valet are in the orchard, smothered to death, and beside them is a rope, a chair, a knife, and two dressing gowns. So what has been going on there? And I think it's that Darnley and his servant heard people coming to blow up the house. They got out of the house using a chair and the rope, lowered themselves down, they had the dressing gowns to get dressed in, and they had a knife to protect themselves but it was hopeless. They were outnumbered by all these men who grabbed them and smothered them because Darnley was the purpose of this murder plot. And it seems very clear to me that Mary was in complete shock. Mary had no idea about it. If she thought the aristocrats and her half-brother were going to do anything, they're just going to maybe tell him off or beat him up that he will be murdered. This is a complete catastrophe. She is convinced she's going to be next. But also, of course. She's under massive suspicion. So, this murder of Darnley is a brilliant stroke of the nobles. In one, they get rid of Darnley, who they hate. And in two, they make everyone suspect
4: Mary and put her under massive suspicion. Yes, it's very interesting, isn't it? So, you've got this explosion, this sort of gunpowder plot. And it's probably, as you say, that when Darnley and his servant are trying to escape, that they're caught and asphyxiated. But The fact that there's no attempt to hide that that has been done and that they weren't killed in the explosion leaves this sort of lovely evidence trail to point to the fact that it's a murder and the obvious person to be suspected is Mary. So it's a double whammy. They get rid of their enemy, but at the same time, they throw all sorts of suspicious guilt onto Mary. What impact does that have? You're absolutely right. So they get rid
1: of Darnley. And I think it might have been better had they tried to put him by the blown up house or something like that, but they don't because they are a hopeless load of murderers. It has to be said. The ladies who live near Darnie's house see them running up and down. And these ladies say, what are you lot doing? Why are you running around? Because they know they're doing something bad. So basically they're the most hopeless murderers In royal history, really, not only do they fail in killing Darnley in the blown up house, it's so obvious that they did it. And they're even spotted by some local women who just look out of their windows. I mean, it's really a hopeless attempt at murdering. It's hardly Hercule Poirot stuff. And yes, they are obvious, they are explicit. Darnley is out of the way. And now Mary looks very much to be being pushed under the bus as well, because the ultimate aim is for baby James to be the king, and for James Stuart, Earl of Murray, to be the regent with others, they are getting power from their hated Catholic queen and also hated Darnley. So Mary is under massive suspicion. Of course, what she should have done is put some servants on trial, because what she going to do? Start a trial. She knows he did it. It's her half-brother. It's her relations. That trial's not going to work. And actually, when Mary is later deposed and James Stewart comes to power, he actually does put some servants on trial and they go to the block shouting, it wasn't me, it was you. So they have some scapegoats and Mary doesn't do that. She doesn't have scapegoats. She doesn't put up a show trial. She's lost in this complete and utter panic of what to do. And Catherine de' Medici writes to her, Elizabeth I writes to her saying, you've got to do this. You've got to seize the murderers. And Mary doesn't know what to do. She knows that many of the aristocrats are also in the pay of England. Elizabeth, I don't think, knows about this, but Cecil is paying a lot of the aristocrats to spy on Mary, to gain power from Mary, because Cecil really does not want Mary on the throne. He wants her off. He would much prefer to have James Stuart as regent because James Stuart is Protestant. So Mary is surrounded by enemies all around her. And she really is a story of constantly surrounded by men, particularly who are trying to seize her power. And she agrees to put. Earl Bothwell who was part of the plot on trial and he's put on a show trial and this is a complete fake trial but actually the fake trial has the effect of really sort of quieting a lot of the anger across Europe and Scotland people say well they put him on trial he was acquitted well there's a trial it seems like justice has been done and at this point it does seem as if Mary the sympathy for her the ordinary people have a lot of support for her They think that the aristocrats are pretty corrupt and Elizabeth is happy that there's been some kind of show trial. So Mary is in this position which perhaps she can continue to be Queen independently. This is the current position she's in. But then something very bad happens.
4: So what comes next, Kate? This is just the most extraordinary story. We've had, let me see, two murders so far. We've had two terrible husbands. Where are we going next? We're going somewhere very bad. So
1: Mary goes to see her son. He's at Stirling Castle and he's kept there because the air is better over there. It does make me laugh, doesn't it? They're like, oh, the air's so bad in Edinburgh. Oh no, (laughs) like before the car, before the lorry, they think the air's too polluted in Edinburgh for a baby. She goes to see him in Stirling in April, 1567. And on the way back, Lord Bothwell, Who is very bad. He makes Darnley look like a saint, who she's known before, who helped her escape after the Rizzio plot. He comes up to her and he says, There is rioting in Edinburgh. You need to come with me to Dunbar Castle, where I'll protect you. And she trusts him, but also he's got loads and loads of men with him. He's got many more men than she ever has. So she's outnumbered, even if you didn't trust him. So she goes with him to his castle, which she bought for him, I might add. And there he rapes her. He admits it. The men who are accompanying with her admit it. They say it happened. Mary talks about his doings rude. Everyone around Mary knows that it happened. And he does it for power. He does it because he wants to marry her. And he doesn't want to marry her because he has any love or affection for her. He wants to get power. He wants to be king. This is this horrific chess game. The first person who can seize the queen's body and assault the queen's body and have it marries her, gets power. So it's truly
4: grim. What's the logic there, Kate, that with an assault leading to marriage, how those two things line up together? Lots of people say at different times now, isn't it? The poor queen, that's absolutely
1: horrendous. You know How awful. She's an innocent party. But that's not how it was thought about in the 16th century. You have sex with a woman, you marry her. And Mary, because she has been assaulted by Bothwell, she now feels she has to marry him. And this is what happened very constantly throughout the period. But we have to remember, she's very religious. She believes that marriage is the only option for her in this case. And also she's very fearful that she's pregnant And the thought of giving birth to a baby outside wedlock would be impossible for her. So it's tragic, isn't it? She's been really told in the most horrific way possible that you may be a queen, you may have royal blood, you may have all this money, but you are just a woman and I'm gonna take all your power from you in this horrific way. But what was her choice? She had to throw in her lot with Bothwell. She thought she was pregnant by him. She had to get married to him. And also, Bothwell told her, I went to the pub with all these lords and they signed this bond saying that they'd support my marriage. So, Mary thinks that not only has she got to get married because he's assaulted her, but also because all the aristocrats are going to support her. And if she doesn't marry him, they're going to come for her and someone else is going to do it to her. I mean, someone else is going to try and seize her and attack her. So, maybe if she throws her lot in with Bothwell, everyone might leave her alone. But absolutely not. There might be some supporters of Bothwell, but loads of the others. Completely hate it. Catholics are against it because Bothwell is divorced, and everyone is shocked because he, of course, is on trial for Darnley's death. So, Mary's thinking that maybe this marriage will mean that people will leave me alone is the complete opposite, is the beginning of the ultimate end for her. Because James Stewart is like, this is my moment to come in and seize all power from Mary and really start fighting for her, turn against them and raise an army and take her to battle.
4: Yes, let's fast forward to this moment of the battle and the circumstances that lead Mary to flee to England. Can you sketch that for us briefly? So the marriage is so unpopular. The lords, led by
1: James Stuart, Mary's half-brother, who's always our baddie, he leads an army against Mary. They go to fight at Carberry Hill. Mary's forces kind of give up. Bothwell gives up because he's just the worst husband ever. And Mary is taken to Edinburgh, and she is mocked and shouted at on the way. But there is also some concern that the Queen is being imprisoned. And there is also some people saying, let her out. What the Lords realise is she's too dangerous if you keep her in Edinburgh. So put her in the middle of nowhere. So they put her in Loch Castle on an island in the middle of Loch Leven. And there, poor Mary, she has a miscarriage. She's believed to be pregnant of twins as a consequence of Bothwell's acts upon her. After this miscarriage, she's very weak. And this is when they come to her and they tell her, you've got to abdicate in favour of your son. And they also threaten her with death if she doesn't sign this abdication paper. And of course, we might argue legally, that's not valid. If you're threatened with death in order to get you to sign something, that's not valid, is it? But she is threatened with death. She's very ill and she's forced to abdicate in favour of James, her baby. He's just one year old. And James Stewart, her half-brother, is made the regent, what he's always wanted. Bothwell is sent into exile and he's put in prison in Denmark and he dies really of insanity.
4: But somehow she manages to escape this watery castle at Lochleven and flee to what she thinks is going to be safety. How does she do it and what happens next?
1: Mary escapes Lochleven, and you wouldn't think she would be able to manage it. But what she does do is she rather charms a young man who works for the owners. And she says, look, you know, you could help me get out. And on one night when they're having a wild party, she manages to escape and Mary gets away secretly. And then she manages to flee and go to a stronghold. And James Stewart, his regent, is very unpopular. The aristocrats turned against him. As always, they don't feel they've been given the rewards they expected ordinary new people don't like him so she's at a crossroads and at this precise moment there is a possibility that she could have got her throne back i'm not saying very long but she could have possibly with an army got some kind of power back so she has three choices at this moment in this stronghold she could have tried to fight to get her power back she could have gone to france where she would have been protected Or she could go to England and she decides to go to England to throw herself on the mercy of Elizabeth I. She has a diamond. She sends this diamond to Elizabeth saying, please look after me. Please put me back on my throne. I'm absolutely desperate and I really need the help. So Mary sets off. She lands in the north of England. She stays overnight in the Lake District. She's taken to Carlisle Castle. And it's very sad because she expects straight away to be conducted to London, to meet Elizabeth at Hampton Court and Elizabeth to put her back on the throne. And Elizabeth, she's thinking about it. But on one hand, she's thinking about it. On the other hand, Elizabeth doesn't like going to war. We know that about her. Cecil is telling her not to. Cecil is saying, look, she's a Catholic. Don't put her back on the throne. James Stewart, he's our friend. And so Elizabeth is in this very complicated position about what to do about Mary. And there's an investigation launches into whether or not Mary has killed her husband. And Mary is essentially put on trial for this. But there's no proof that Mary killed Darnley. So what you have is Cecil obviously quite wants to find it. So you have the situation in which Cecil writes to Scotland, to James Stewart, and says, look, can you give me some proof that Mary killed Darnley? And basically, he gets his letter back saying Mary did it. And Cecil says, well, that's not good enough. You've got, I guess, something better than just a letter saying Mary did it. So they amazingly find some letters in a casket under someone's bed in Edinburgh, in which these are these letters that really suggest that Mary might have killed Darnley. And certainly the dates in them don't match up. They are the dates Mary's writing to Darnley. He was actually with her. And certainly, I think it's pretty likely that they're frauds when you look at them. They're a load of clips. It's like when they clipping someone's bits and pieces of their social media out of context to make it into guilt. So I think it's a load of created guilt, really. But Mary is put on trial as a consequence of these letters. And the answer is not that she's guilty, because that would mean that Elizabeth has to do something, which you know, she doesn't want to do that. How can you punish a queen? We don't want to execute a queen. And she's not innocent, because that means she had to be set free. And that also, Cecil is saying, don't set her free. She'll cause an uprising. Mary doesn't want to govern England. She really doesn't. She wants to get her throne back. But Cecil is terrified that she does. And so Mary is found not guilty, not innocent. And this really begins the rest of her life, which is under house arrest. And initially, it's quite luxurious house arrest. But as time goes on, it gets more and more strict. Because as time goes on, Cecil becomes more fearful that Spain's going to put Mary on the throne, that Mary will take the throne. So she's put under more and more restriction. And she's put under so much restriction that everything she does is watched.
4: Cecil is also coming out as the baddie in this story, William Cecil, a Lord Burley, But also, I suppose, he does have reasons to fear. The international context, as time goes on, is such that soon after Mary arrives in England... There's been a plot in the north of the country and as a result of that, the Pope has excommunicated Elizabeth, effectively saying anyone can invade and take her throne. And there are various plots to try and put this Catholic Queen in her place. So, you know, Cecil is understandably nervous, but he's certainly looking for evidence against Mary. And he and Sir Francis Walsingham, the spymaster to Elizabeth, together work to find that evidence that will in the end persuade Elizabeth that this other queen must die. How does it happen?
1: You're right, Susie. I mean, Cecil is terrified that Elizabeth is going to be thrown off the throne and he's much more fearful than Elizabeth I mean she feels very strongly that the people do love her and that she's a good queen and she should stay and Cecil I think you just imagine him just saying, no Elizabeth don't do that don't do that and she keeps doing it so it must be very frustrating to be him but he's terrified of Mary and I would definitely argue that the enemy lies out there um, by this point, France is saying, look, just send her to us. We'll look after her, we'll watch her, we'll make sure that she doesn't get out, that she doesn't do anything. And they say no. And I think that would have been the ideal solution had they sent Mary off to France. And Cecil is fearful that Elizabeth's going to be thrust off the throne. And added to his fear is the fact that Elizabeth has no children. Now, you know Cecil is endlessly hopeful, isn't he? He's, he's endlessly hopeful that Elizabeth's going to have children long after it seems possible. But you certainly see him becoming very much stricter with Mary after those plots, but also when it becomes clear that Elizabeth isn't going to marry, isn't going to have a child, because of course that means that if Elizabeth dies, Mary is by many people's reckoning, the closest person to the throne. And she could possibly come to the throne. And what would happen to Cecil then? He would not be popular if Mary was to be queen. So you can really see why he's so determined to make sure that she has nothing. And it becomes very clear to him that they really have to sort out the problem of Mary. Uh, But they're in a difficulty because they imprison her so strictly that she can't actually get involved in plots because nothing can get out. In fact, her jailer says, you know what, not even a flea could get out of Mary's rooms. And that's not the kind of thing they need if they wanted to get entwined in a plot. So what they do is they give her more freedom and they have someone constantly reading her letters and everything that she does is constantly looked at. So she is invited to take part in a plot but the agent who transmits the letters, he's just giving them straight to Cecil's man. So Mary really is invited to be in this plot. And I don't think the plotters of the Babington plot, I think they were idealistic men. I don't think they were trying to trap Mary. But I do think it's interesting that an agent who knew people in France said, I'll take your letters for you. And he popped up suddenly when Mary couldn't take letters before. He said, I'll take the letters for you. And that this plot coincides with... With him taking the letters. So Mary agrees. The Babington plotters say, We will depose Elizabeth and you can have the throne. And Mary agrees. And this is a horrific mistake. She's guiltless of her husband's death, but she does agree to this. And this is treason. Now, we might say, you know, she's desperate. She's been pushed into it. She hasn't been allowed to see her son. She's not allowed to see anyone. She's isolated. All she wants to do is have one meeting with Elizabeth, and she's not allowed. She's never been allowed to meet Elizabeth. And she's realising that she's stuck there. Her health is declining. She spent 20 years in prison. She's in such a bad way. But still, she does it. Still, she agrees to the plot and to get rid of Elizabeth. And she is put on trial for treason against it. She denies the charges. She says, I'm a queen. You cannot put me on trial. And she says, look, I'm surrounded by people who lie. I'm surrounded by people who forge my letters. And certainly some of her secretaries who gave up a lot of the letters, they later get protection from not really quite sure who. So, but Mary argues very effectively during the trial, but it's not enough. She's committed treason,
4: so this is her fate. Since her death, Mary has become a kind of romantic heroine, as we started out by saying. I think in the 19th century in particular, they made her into this tragic figure What do you make of the afterlives of Mary, Queen of Scots?
1: There are many afterlives, as you say, and there are many afterlives in which she is a romance heroine. And I think I find it particularly disturbing how a sexual assault on Mary, which all the sources agree with, they all say it happened, from Mary to Bothwell to the lords around her, that suddenly gets turned into this romantic story of a tall, dark, handsome Bothwell. That I find very disturbing, and I also find it very curious that it said, why was she such a failure? Really, I would argue, everything is stacked against her from the beginning. How can she possibly succeed when she is constantly being surrounded by these men who will physically try and seize power from her? And they are doing it all the time. And, you know, murders, kidnapping, seizing, this happens to her. You know, you look at the history of queens, and there are many who have been mainly really mistreated by their male subjects, by their male advisors, by some women as well. But I wonder whether you can find many who've been as badly treated as Mary, Queen of Scots. The fact is she can barely govern without some man trying to seize her physically. And this, I think, is really disturbing. And I think above all, you know, she's a woman who really shows us that being surrounded by men, they're all trying to seize her power and that there was no respect for royal blood whatsoever. And this contrast with Elizabeth that actually, although Mary gets married and Elizabeth doesn't, Mary makes many of the same decisions as Elizabeth in the early days about religious toleration, about listening to her ministers, about trying to bring everyone into her government, even the half-brother, about trying to rule for herself. And for all of these, she is condemned and she is lost and she is captured. And I really think it is a fascinating exposition about how hard it is for women to have power. She was a rightful queen. She tried to rule as a rightful queen and she was simply not allowed and it was taken from her repeatedly. What is the answer for a female queen? Is it to remain unmarried as Elizabeth did and then be condemned because you don't continue the succession? And indeed, Mary's son becomes your heir or is it to marry and be surrounded by all this violence? So certainly I think that she is above all one that says to us that we cannot look at female monarchs and judge them in the same way that we judge male monarchs because people at the time did not. And people at the time saw Mary as easy pickings and someone that they could exploit and seize power from her. And her attempt to rule by herself, an attempt to rule in a woman's name and a woman's voice, really was what killed her in the end because the men weren't having that.
4: Thank you, Professor Kate Williams. On Mary, Queen of Scots... If you want to know more about Mary, Queen of Scots, Kate has a very good book called Rival Queens, which is out now. Thank you, Kate, so much for coming on. Thank you. I feel we have the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history,
3: our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Thank you for listening to that, everybody. That was an episode of Not Just the Tudors, the wonderful new chart-topping pod from Professor Susanna Lipscomb. There are plenty more episodes where that came from, so go to wherever you get your pods and subscribe, rate, and leave a little review for Professor Lipscomb so her pod
2: gets the audience it deserves. Thank you. Planning for your next trip?